You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Paco Barragan. He's talking to me from Oviedo in Spain. Paco, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Brainerd, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Paco, there's a few things I want to talk about. Your, your book, but also um, what, you're, what you're curating at the moment. Let's, let's begin with curatorial work first. What's, what's happening right now? Okay, um, I just uh, curated a show called the, the Vertigo of Modern Life. Um, I'm not going to talk about the show, but I think that it, it will be interesting to talk about my uh, philosophy as a curator. I think that, uh, and then I will explain how this show is particularly related to my philosophy as a curator. I think that today, uh, today and since the 70s on, uh, the kind of curator we have is the curator as narrator. Uh, before, I mean the uh, beginning of the century with the great German curators like Willem Bode, Ludwig Justi, Ugo van Sudi, and especially with American Alfred Barr, we had the, the total curator. What is the total curator? The total curator is the curator's narrator, the curator as museologist, and the curator as exhibition designer. Now, today, as we see, uh, we only have this uh, curator as narrator model, which I call the, um, um, the Harald Seemann model. Harald Seemann was uh, an important curator. Uh, he was very innovative, and, but he was a great narrator. But he was not a museologist, and he was not an exhibition designer. I mean... Why is this important? Because um, if you go to museums these days, it doesn't matter if you go to Tate, MoMA, Reina Sofia, the Mori Museum in, in Tokyo, uh, or Mambo in Bogota. It's all the same aseptic and boring white cube. And the white cube is dead since many years. But why do uh, curators, but not only curators, also museum directors, uh, artists, dealers, and so on, keep working with a white cube. Very simple. Right. Because they don't know about museology and exhibition design. That's the thing. And that's the real problem. And to me, uh, um, uh, the white cube, it's, it's, um, it's a very limited model, especially for contemporary audiences. Why is it a very limited model? Because the white cube is just the representation or the formulation of the l'art pour l'art principle. It's merely a formalist uh, 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 cube. It's a formalist museology. And most of the exhibitions today, as you well know, Brainer, deal with identity, race, gender, feminism, uh, climatology, and so on. How does the white cube operate? It operates on two levels. One, it overstatizes the work, and two, it depoliticizes the work. So uh, practically, anything you put into the white cube, it gets, it becomes like uh, decorative. So 
this is my uh, philosophy as a curator and also it's very fascinating to see how all these uh, uh, curatorial schools, museum studies and whatever keep producing all these uh, uh, white cube uh, 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 adherents or, or curators that can only work into the white cube because you, go, you can go around to an exhibition and you don't see anything else. So um, I think that the future of curating lies precisely not only in being a, a great narrator and telling a story, but also lies precisely into museology and exhibition design. Because we have to be able to create much better presentations. We have to be able to create what I call contextual museologies. In other words, we need to create context for those large number of people that go to the museum, as you know very well, and I could say maybe 95% of those people are not art experts. As such, they are unable to relate critically with what they see. And also, uh, I mean, uh, the white cube is, an, is, is uh, uh, completely anachronistic because you know very well that since the advent of, of uh, Impressionism and then other avant-garde movements like Expressionism, Surrealism, uh, Dadaism, whatever, every kind of art has had its own specific museology. What has happened that we today, we take for example Marcel Duchamp or Dali and we put them, we crush them into the white cube and many other artists. So, I mean, that's, that's not the way it works, especially because most of the people that visit um, museums, because when we talk about people that visit museums, we're talking about access, we're talking about democracy, and it's really good access and democracy, but if you can only go to a museum, make a selfie and, and hang the, and upload a picture on, on Instagram, it's not really democratic. And, and the visit will not really change your, your way in any significant way. So now going back to my exhibition, my latest exhibition, The Vertical of Monolife, what did I do? I recreated three particular contexts. Uh, the idea of the vertical of modern life comes from the book from Philip Blom, where he says that between 1900 and 1900, uh, um, 1914, he says, a new world order reemerged. And I thought, well, today, between 2000 and now, the beginning of the first, 21st century, also a new world order is reemerging, is being created. And we see it now with Ukraine and Russia. No? Um, and I thought, but still today, many artists, as you well know, uh, uh, relate, uh, reflect, or pick on issues that were addressed by Impressionists, uh, Expressionists, and Surrealists. So what did I do? I recreated the Impressionist hang of Edgar Degas of 1877 with wallpaper, two, two rows, 20 centimeter separation. So I created this context where you could see. I didn't put original uh, Impressionist works. I put works of contemporary artists that in a way deal with this idea of expressing uh, uh, the modern city, uh, experiments with color, uh, and so on. Then I recreated the Expressionist hang of 1905 of the Brücke, 
with a strong uh, green lime color and uh, the works hanged very low, just one, one row. And artists that dealt with, you know, the expressionist um, gesture or with ideas of anxiety, war and so on. And then in the big space of the museum in Salamanca, I recreated Marcel Duchamp's iconic 1942 twine. And this time I recreated much bigger uh, and I also adapted it and uh, I made it uh, much more aggressive and also uh, much more ambitious. And during the opening, we even recreated one. So, yeah, so let's talk more about that. This is his twine, and that's a very it's kind twine. of complex and unusual element in, a, in an exhibition. This is a kind of a rope that's, that's yes. I don't know how much of it, but it's an awful lot of it, isn't it? Okay, uh, the thing is, it's, uh, this is a very fascinating, uh, Marcel Duchamp was a really a fascinating uh, character. Now, Marcel Duchamp, he was also a, a he liked to, to pull our legs because he said that he used, he called it the 60 mile twine, okay? But this is no way possible. I think he, he might have used like one half mile or two miles at most. I've taken, I've used a space that is like eight times bigger as his because we had a main room and then we had six adjacent rooms. We bought 15 kilometers 15 kilometers, which is uh, run about, uh, let's say, 10 miles, okay? And I still got like one mile left. You got this. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you put, and you put up an awful lot, which is part of, yeah, you're saying that was Duchamp's sense of humor that ran through a lot of his works. What he said they were weren't always the case. Yes, yes. So this was fascinating. Also, you, you know, there is this famous, uh, there are two famous pictures of, of, of the install. One is by John Schiff, and it looks like uh, um, you could not access the installation, that you could already ex access the installation only from one, one side. That was not true. I mean, he asked John Schiff to go behind and, and to do this kind of fake. So what did I do on my representation, my, uh, my installation? I created this fake. So you could, uh, because in the original twine, you could access the installation from two sides. There were two doors. In my, in my uh, installation, I created this fake and you could access the installation only from one side, you know? Uh, about the performance, he, uh, he had, uh, for example, a very interesting perf performance uh, with, with children, with boys playing ball, and then not all with girls. So what did I do? I said, I have to, I want to update this performance today. So what did I do? I, uh, I looked for, instead of six boys playing, playing football, playing soccer, I looked for three boys and three girls. So during the installation, we had, while people were walking around between the twines, there were three boys and three girls playing ball, which was very nice. Um, there's other different uh, elements that I had to be consistent on. Uh, you know that um, Marcel Duchamp really put the twines on the works, you know? The twines were, <laughs> were really uh, very aggressive onto the works. And many, and, and some of the artists like Mondrian and others, they were uh, uh, really uh, disappointed or, or even angry with it. Because, because they didn't want anybody touching their work. That typically, yes. especially with the curator or person hanging the show, doesn't do, like, don't touch yes. the work, right? 
yes, but you know, uh, um, we could say that Duchamp was a curator dictator. So what did we do? We really worked around it. We, we create this kind of, uh, you know, uh, this kind of effect with the twine, but we really worked around it and uh, we di didn't touch, uh, never, we never touched the work. So it was really exciting. And we used a lot of rope. It was really interesting. I also did a little bit of... Wait a minute, it didn't touch the works? It looks as though it touches the works, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 but they never touch the work. We really worked very hard. It's always in front of it, you know? It's, uh, so we, we had to work a lot. We had like eight people working on the twines for almost two weeks, Brainerd. Can you imagine? That was really, really intensive. Also, what I did... That's amazing, uh, yeah. Two, so two weeks and you put up how many... That was almost yeah, eight, like, eight like or nine miles. miles of twine. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that, and that's a lot. And there's still like one mile uh, rope uh, left, you know. So, but I like this Duchamp. He says 60 mile twine and, and everybody says, okay, we go for it. I'll buy it. <laughs> Anyway, what, what I also did, I did a little bit of some updating um, uh, because I painted the walls dark, you know, because um, uh, while, um, when Duchamp did uh, the performance, it was just like the, this kind of uh, a copy of a Renaissance palace and they built these structures, platforms, because they couldn't use the, the walls, you know. So what, what I did, uh, I, I painted the walls black because, you know, most of uh, these typical uh, surrealist installations are really these immersive dark spaces, as you know very well. And uh, I also put some, I put a video uh, by Bruce Nauman that's, that's uh, lip sync. I don't know if you remember him. That's, that's a, I sure. put this as, uh, where he's upside down and all the time saying lip sync, lip sync, lip sync, all the time. So I put that as, as background music in the installation, you know. So it was really, it's, it's really fascinating uh, how, uh, uh, and that, that is also one of the reasons why I think we need to study museology, because we can learn a lot from the past. And then how you have to be consistent in, in how you're going to update it. And I think this is... Uh, this is the way to go for a curator. We need to know more about museology and exhibition design and not just uh, being stuck in the white cube because the white cube is basically for a very high-end audience, for, for a person that has uh, a high command of art and also the whole uh, a system of hanging the work separated and so on at eye high that everything works towards a formalist representation of it. And I think this is just, uh, this is no longer valid. Uh, we are at least 45 years stuck with a white cube. We need to come up with something better, with better, and as I say, contextual methodologies. And um, I agree, and it's just so, so exciting to hear about that show. You know, I, I applaud that, and there'll be some images here people can, of course, see of, of that, uh, you know, kind of, enormous undertaking you know yeah. since, since we're talk, talking about your 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 background as a curator and your perspective and the framework of it um your book from olympia festival to neoliberal biennial yeah. or from yeah. roman korea to global art fair um was was recently published and that also is is about a curator's perspective i mean you're talking about a history there but you're also in a sense talking about the history of curating 
right? Yeah, in in a way, well, um, uh, history of curating, but also I think Brainerd, what I think was very interesting in this book is to talk about the perspective of the artist in every epoch, you know, in Greece and Rome and whatever. But uh, I think that uh, for me, uh, since a couple of years, since 2016, I don't do white cubes. I wanted to write about a white cube, but it's a long investigation. I wanted to write about museology, but uh, you know, I started to uh, to look for books on museology, and mo most books on museology are really boring, uh, written by academics that don't have really a first-hand experience, and it's about and it's really boring because it's about cross-quoting and. Uh, and it was not until I, I came across The Power of Display by Marianne Staniszewski that, that really was an eye-opener. You know, all the uh, exhibitions by, by Alfred Barr at MoMA uh, from the end of the 1930s till, till the 60s, that was really amazing. And from there, I got back to Germany where most of uh, modern uh, museology uh, got invented. But when I was reading this, I came to the conclusion that um, you cannot write about museology or write about curating without knowing the history of collecting, knowing the history of, of the art market, about art fairs, biennials, uh, dealers, and so on. Because uh, most of the museological displays respond not only to a, uh, let's say, an ideological, but also to a commercial, uh, uh, to commercial reasons. I mean, the, the, the impressionist hang or the expressionist, uh, you know, there, there is not only an ideological reason behind it, but also a commercial reason, no? So uh, very often these things, the museological and the commercial, are intertwined to such an extent that we do not, long, uh, that we do not know. So for me, it became very important to have a better take a better perspective of how the art market was made and is still made. I mean, uh, and, and I found that uh, the, the whole history of art fairs and biennials was a, a fascinating topic because normally we just, everyone talks about, you know, the salon and the world fair, but they all go back a long way. And it, and it allows you to, to research and to have a better understanding of how things of how these topics really uh, developed. And especially what is interesting is that there was historically no difference between, you know, an art fair and a biennial as, as it is today or, as it, or a museum. There was no difference between a sales and, or the commercial and the non-commercial. That's something that is, I mean, I would say quite recently, maybe the last 40, 50 years because most, most exhibitions and most shows, uh, they were just, even at the Venice Bayern, they were just sales shows, you know? So, I mean, I, I thought that was interesting to address. And also the fact that fair, uh, feria comes from, from Latin, from Rome. So uh, we all use this word, but we don't really uh, know where it came from. So, uh, and, and, and the idea that all these, uh, many of these uh, platforms are uh, originally related to religious events, no? Um. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, around typical religious events, the, 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 the fairs were meant to celebrate a, 
a pagan holiday, perhaps initially. Yes, yes, and and you got and you got a special exemptions on these days, so to bring to bring your goods from outside. Uh, it was amazing because fairs also gave status to 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 a place where where a fair was held. No, hmm. isn't it the same today? You know, right? Biennials create a, a a kind of tourist draw destination. A huge influx of of income potentially for the city. Yes, Ed. there is one thing that, um, if I may steer the conversation, Brainer, there's one thing that uh, I would like to address uh, because um, people ask me all the time, so are fairs going to change biennials, especially fairs, no? Uh, and then you could say, you could ask me, are biennials going to change? I say, okay, uh, we always uh, have to... Uh, strive for the aura mediocritas. Of course, we are in times of change, so everything has to change. But I would send the question back to you, because I don't think the biggest change is here. Uh, what's going on is for fairs or, or biennials, because there are these experiential events, very short, and people like it. I think the biggest challenge is here for museums, you know? Museums, they really have a tough, uh, a tough uh, task ahead because museums are still today, I think they, they reached their peak in the 20th century, but they are totally out, out of step with, with, the, uh, with the needs and, uh, of the citizen. I mean, uh, we all talk about the concept of access to culture and we think of, of the museum as a place that embodies this access to culture and, and this whole idea of strong commitment towards cultural partic participation uh, as because this is a democratic issue. But Brainerd, do we really think museums are, are uh, democratic? I mean, they have their own program-based, top-down-based uh, uh, functioning, they never take uh, the uh, the needs of the citizen into consideration. The idea of audience development is still something that most of the museums never have heard of. You know, so uh, when are they going to adapt and adopt audience-centric approaches? I mean, we need to change that because. Uh, we need to talk to people to see what they want, what they need, what are their expectations with relation to cultural institutions. We cannot make, keep making uh, uh, or programming exhibitions that are for the happy view, that are spe specifically for the art world, that are created by a director and a chief curator because they respond to their specific agenda and they respond to those small group of people they want to connect to, uh, whatever. So we're talking about the whole time in the art world, we're talking about participation, okay? But the art world is participation still means it's very uh, passive and reactive. I don't know if you ever listened to that British program, Top of the Pops. You know, that was like the... Sure, yeah, I know the program. Okay, so this is the same. You go to MoMA, you go to Winnie, you go to Tate, and you look at the top of the pops that somebody has selected for you. And you just look at it, smile, and say, yes, no, yes, no. That's, is this, uh, this is what participation is in museums and cultural institutions. Now my question is, 
is this what access, representation, and participation in the 20th century should be? Right. Yeah, that's the, the that's the question. So um, that's where we're at. That's where we're at today. That's the question that you're exploring potentially in the next exhibit, or even working with museums. Right. Yes, I know this is a really fascinating question. Actually, I'm trying to see if I can. Um, uh, for for future shows, talk to people, you know, create small groups and, and say, uh, especially young people, adolescents or older people, you know, because uh, I'm saying with, um, I, I'm meeting all the people and to, to see what the needs are, what their expectations are, and to see if I can come up with an exhibition that in a way can address those needs and those expectations. Now, uh, of course, uh, this is quite challenging because I need to get out of my comfort zone, right? Right, right. That's that's. Uh, I mean, we all do, but but of course, you do specifically in this context. Yeah, to to to, to be creative and address those needs. Um, it's great talking with you, Paco. Uh, I'm, I'm, there's links in here so people can can of course get the book that we're talking about and. And, and learn more about um, just what we're discussing. Before I ask you the last question about what you're reading, is there anything else that, that you want to add to this or that I should have asked? Uh, no, I mean, um, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy. We didn't talk much about the book, but I think that talking about uh, uh, the curatorial, uh, my curatorial perspective is really interesting because it actually... Uh, feeds all what I do, my writing and my, and my reading and, uh, and you know, so um, it's really, I'm, I'm really happy with uh, this, uh, the discussion we had. And, and, and what are you reading at the moment? What are you, what's on your uh, reading table or wherever you're reading? Well, um, you know, I read a lot um, and actually... Um, what I say, one of my slogans is that behind a good curator is an even better reader. So I'm reading like four or five books at a time, but um, I'm going to give you two, two, two titles, you know. One, it's very interesting. When Artists Curate, Contemporary Art and the Exhibitionist Medium by Alison Green. Okay? okay. What about that? Um, yes, because I think that artists are really creative uh, when, uh, and at least some artists are really creative with their installs, but they lack the museolo museological knowledge. So they can be great exhibition designers, but they need to have this museolo museological knowledge to know when to use what. But, you know, so as I have discussions with some artists, I think this is interesting. And then I'm reading the other book that I was reading. It's called The New Painting, Impressionism, 1874-1886. Why? Because I want, I'm a, I'm a painting curator, among many other things. I love painting. I did many painting shows. But I want to do, I think it's, it's weird that nobody has done a great painting show about what has been going on in painting during the last, let's say, 35, 40 years. At least I, I haven't seen such a show. I mean, uh, it would be great. Maybe you have, I haven't. So uh, maybe uh, this can be an idea that I want to uh, do a big painting show, let's say 1988, 2000, um, 
23, 24, 25, like 35, 40 years of painting, and try to see what what kind of uh, what kind of media, what kind of uh, movements, painting, and so uh, happened. I think I think it's uh, well, yeah, an ambitious an ambitious venture, as you can see. Yes, it is. I like that. Um, Paco, it's great talking to you. I want to just thank you for talking with me today. And of course, for those listeners, there's links to what we've been talking about, the book and more. Paco, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. It's great uh, to be here. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.